Our first scripture reading comes from Psalm 1. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they mediate, they meditate, excuse me, day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in the season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The second reading is a selection of verses from the book of Ecclesiastes. Perfectly pointless, says the teacher. Perfectly pointless. Everything is pointless. What do people gain from all the hard work that they work so hard at under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains as it always has. When I next observed all the oppressions that take place under the sun, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. Their oppressors wield power, but they have no one to comfort them. So I declare that the dead, who have already died, are more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. Here's another thing that happens on the earth that is pointless. The righteous get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. I say that this, too, is pointless. So I commend enjoyment, because there's nothing better for the people to do under the sun but to eat, drink, and be glad. This is what will accompany them in their hard work during the lifetime that God gives under the sun. Remember your Creator in your prime, before the days of trouble arrive, and those years about which you'll say, I take no pleasure in these. This is God's story for God's people. Thanks be to God. Oh God, we look deeply into your scriptures this morning, and so come upon us in power and might, in grace and in love. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So good morning again to you. This is part five of our series this summer, this teaching sermon series on understanding the Bible. You can catch up on parts one through four of this series if you've missed any of them by visiting our website or by signing up for our podcast. They are available there. In the first four lessons, we followed a theme that is woven all the way through the Bible. God creates a covenant with humankind. The covenant is broken when people stray from God's law, 
But God forgives and renews the covenant, and the covenant is restored, and our relationship with God can begin again. This is the story of the Bible. I suspect that by now, more than a few of you are thinking, okay, Adam, I get it. Covenant, created, broken, restored, created, broken, restored. Follow God, things will go well. Stray from God, things will not go well. I get it. Here's the problem, pastor. A lot of the time, life does not work that way. Let me give you some examples you might continue. My boss is a slime ball, both in the way that he conducts his business and in his personal life. So are many of the politicians and world leaders that I see on the screen and read about each day. Why do these people enjoy so much power and comfort and influence in their lives and in the world? On the other hand, you might say, my next door neighbor is a saint. I have never seen a kinder, more generous, more hardworking person. And yet, her daughter is sick. She struggles with her own health. And just recently, she got laid off from her job. All of these bad things keep on happening to her. How do you explain that, Adam? Did she break the covenant? Is that what I'm to think? How do we make sense of these things? Before I go any further, let me be clear that I do not intend this morning to explain suffering to you. If it were possible to do that in 15 minutes, if ministers knew how, they would teach that to us on the first day of seminary, and we would not keep it a secret from you. We would tell you each and every week. But there is no simple answer. What I'm going to suggest instead is that this idea, this idea that the world is not fair, this idea that things do not go the way that they should, this is not a new idea. We have all thought about it, and so did people in the ancient world. And the Bible speaks directly to this reality of human experience. And that's where we're going to spend some time in this morning's lesson. Today's topic is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. And aside from the books of the law and the books of the prophets, which we have talked about in previous lessons, this is the third main type of writing we find in what we know as the Old Testament. These books are filled not only with philosophical reflections, they are filled with emotional, sometimes heart-wrenching reflections that individual people had about God and life in the world. Specifically, just to give some orientation, the books I'm talking about are the ones like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the book of Job. Wisdom literature is also woven through other books in the Bible. Let's begin with today's first reading. It comes from Psalm number one. And I put this psalm right up front to demonstrate that sometimes wisdom literature says that conventional wisdom does work out, that things do go according to plan, that the world does work the way that it's supposed to. 
And so there are passages in the Bible, many of them, that sound like Psalm number one. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on God's law, they meditate day and night. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There is wisdom here that we do not want to dismiss too quickly. This is the kind of wisdom we teach to our children, right? That values like kindness and fair play and generosity, these are important things to live by. And that if you do live by these values, things will turn out well for you in the end. This is what we teach our children, and with good reason. But, as I have said, as we've said this morning, life is more complicated than that, isn't it? And the Bible reveals that wisdom as well, and does so at great length. One place of note is the book of Ecclesiastes. You may not have realized before you walked in this morning that you are familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn, turn, turn by the birds is an exact quote of chapter 3 of the book of Ecclesiastes. For most of us, those are familiar words, but those are not the most troubling words from the book of Ecclesiastes. The author of this book has been around the block a few times, if you will, and starts right away in the beginning of chapter one with this verse, perfectly pointless. Everything is perfectly pointless. Another translation says vanity. Everything is vanity. The author goes on to tell about his life experience, which is deep and rich, the material things that he has built and seen, and all that he has done, only to find that it is all pointless, and as he says, like chasing after wind. He talks about the wicked people of the world who prosper, and the good people who suffer, and the oppression that comes to so many people who live in a world that is not fair. And he concludes more than a few times in the book that often it feels like the best we can do is to eat and drink and enjoy whatever blessings can be found in the day that we have because it may not last. Plenty of us have felt that way. No? There are no easy answers here. But in passages like these in the Bible, we find that these frustrated reflections are part of faithful living. They are not heresy. They are not found only outside the Bible. And we are not alone in sometimes harboring these thoughts. They are part of our story. The Psalms treats some of these feelings as well. Not all the Psalms are like Psalm number one. The Psalms are the Bible's longest book of poetry. And not all these Psalms are about happy justice as found in Psalm number one. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann has famously said that there are three kinds of Psalms in the book. There are Psalms of orientation, 
There are psalms of disorientation, and there are psalms of reorientation. Psalm 1 is the first kind. It's a psalm of orientation. It expressed the psalmist, the poet's feelings about God when life is fair and when things make sense. But some psalms are about disorientation. They're about the times in life when things seem to be falling apart. And the psalmist writes words like these that come from Psalm 74. God, why have you abandoned us forever? Why does your anger smolder at the sheep of your own pasture? You might also remember the words that Jesus speaks on the cross when he feels the most abandoned in his whole life. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words weren't original to Jesus. He quoted them from Psalm 22. And finally, there are psalms of reorientation. Reorientation, when the poet has come through a time of suffering to the other side and writes things like what we hear in Psalm number 30. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from those who have gone down to the pit. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy is found in the morning. What does this look like in life, in real life, this story of orientation and disorientation and reorientation? I invite you to think about a regular person like you or like me living through the natural stages we go through in a time of grief and loss. Maybe this is someone who has lost a job or who has lost a spouse or has lost good health. Before the loss happened, in a time of orientation, life seemed for the most part good and fair. But tragedy strikes, loss, grief. And in the midst of the very worst times, all we can do, perhaps all we should do, is to feel the sadness and the rage and the despondency that comes with being a human being who has experienced something horrible. And one of the great tragedies of our culture is that often we don't have good resources to feel those feelings as deeply as we should. God sees us through these dark nights of the soul, thanks to what we can only call grace. And so at some point, we reach a time of reorientation. We look back at a time when we've gone through great suffering and we lacked the strength to carry on, and we see that it was God who sustained us, and we are grateful. And this new gratitude, though, it's not like the naive happiness that we had before the suffering. It's a deeper joy. It's born out of wisdom and experience. 
It's the joy that we know that when life gives us more than we can handle, our faith, our God, can see us through. The Psalms are poems of orientation and disorientation and reorientation. The personal story of that creation and brokenness and recreation of God's covenant. And through this pattern in wisdom literature, we see that the Bible is not a book of happy platitudes, but a book of wisdom. Psalm writers do not ignore feelings like sadness or despair or rage. They allow themselves to feel it. And this is a part of the biblical story. Incidentally, I've preached at greater length on this idea in the past of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. I've preached a sermon about how it's a lot like attending a Grateful Dead concert. And if that idea is intriguing to you, I will repost that sermon along with this one. <laughs> now then, there is the book of Job. The book of Job, which I suspect is a bit more familiar to some of you, at least in concept. This is the story of a man named Job, who is described as a righteous and good servant of God in every way. And then one day, his life falls apart. The book of Job is his story. This book of wisdom literature is widely considered to be drawn from a simple ancient folktale. The very first and the last chapters of the book of Job recount that ancient folktale of a man who has it all and loses everything, but is faithful and gets it all back tenfold. The beauty of the book is found in the middle. In the middle. There, there is a clear shift in voice from the folktale told at the beginning and the end. And from chapters 3 all the way through chapter 42, the author adds a long pouring out of emotion about the tremendous unfairness and the inexplicable nature of this simple folktale at the bookends. For 39 chapters, Job argues with his friends and argues with God about the inexplicable suffering of human life. Elaine Pagels is one of the most important biblical scholars of the last century. She is also someone who has known her share of suffering. She lost a very young child to a heart defect. And shortly thereafter, her beloved husband died in a climbing accident. You will remember in previous sermons how I talked about the tragic times in the history of Israel, times when the covenant fell apart and suffering was all around. Elaine Pagels writes that books like Job voice human feelings for these times. Job, she says, is the voice of an anguished, angry poet who speaks for countless people devastated by war, driven as exiles into poverty, who have seen their children die and who have buried them while living as refugees, scrambling for scraps of their previous lives. This poet mocks the folktale's simple moralism. 
These are biblical texts that can be a friend to people who are genuinely despairing, to people who are wondering if they want to go on. As I said near the start of this sermon, none of this serves the purpose of explaining suffering. And explaining suffering is not quite the point. All of these books we've talked about this morning are the Bible's own acknowledgement that sometimes life is not fair. And at times, the covenant model that I've been talking to you about for weeks does not work out the way that it should. This way of thinking is not only real and present in our lives, it's present in the Bible. It is present in the Bible, screaming at God and talking about the fact that life isn't fair. This is not the stuff of heresy. It is a thoroughly orthodox way of understanding what is written right in the pages of the Bible. I admit that in church, these texts don't always get the same amount of attention as the inspirational ones, and that is probably to our detriment and perhaps partially my fault but it is not the fault of the Bible itself. As we look ahead to the last two sermons in this series, we will find that the New Testament voices these same frustrations about unfairness and injustice in its own way, and we'll start to take that up the next time in part six of the series. I imagine that this sermon might have raised some questions that you wish to talk about more. And so I want to remind all of you that each and every week of this summer on Wednesday evenings, there is an opportunity in a Bible study to go deeper with these sermons that happens here at church Wednesday nights, 6 to 7.30. Please join us. And of course, I am always happy to talk to you more personally. Please be in touch. I'll see you next time for part six when we turn to the New Testament. Amen.